Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. I saw a kid one time, she had a couple of band-aids you know, on, you know, and, and I asked her, I said, what's going on here? You got a little boo-boos, you know? And uh, she, she pulls back the band-aids to show me her, her, boom, her boo-boo, her wound, and uh, there's nothing there. Uh, she, she, she was not actually hurt. She was just wearing band-aids. Kids do that sometimes. They'll fake an injury uh, so they can get band-aids. And I, and I was thinking about this. Uh, we didn't do that as a kid. I don't, I don't think we did that. I didn't do that as a kid. Um, maybe other people did, but I didn't do it. And my theory on that is there was this uh, antiseptic, this liquid called mercurochrome. And um, that stuff hurts and it hurt bad. And so like if you got a cut or something, you would rather your finger be cut off or your forehead amputated than um, have any of that stuff on you. It hurt really bad. It was a red liquid and um, they, you know, they put it on your wound there and uh, it, it got in there and it stained your skin and then it would hurt. My mom, I forgot, I forgot what this was called. So I text my mom to ask her the name of it so I could tell you guys about it, you know, and, and my mom responded back, LOL, it was this stuff. And uh, she sent me a picture of it, which I thought was funny that my mom responded back, LOL. I was like, hey mom, what was the stuff that hurt really bad? And she said, laugh out loud, it was this stuff, right? You know, it's just, I think she remembered um, the joy of the pain that it that caused. When she sent me that picture though, it was like a, it was a screenshot. This was part of the wording there. It said, readily available in most countries. It is no longer sold in Switzerland, Brazil, France, Iran, Germany, or the United States due to its mercury contents. Not only did it hurt, it was poison, all right? It was poison. And um, you know, I don't think of, obviously my mom was not uh, trying to hurt me, nor was she trying to poison me, uh, but it certainly felt like that. It was an antiseptic. She was trying to help. She was trying to help, you know? And sometimes, the reason I bring that up is because sometimes there are things in life that help, but they hurt. They hurt, and yet they help us. When we're looking at this text that we're gonna look at today, it talks about a certain action, a certain deed, a command, in fact, that Paul is going to give to the church in Thessalonica that is extended to us. And when we obey that command, Every time you follow through with what Paul commands us to do, the actions, uh, they need grace, they need wisdom. However, they don't feel wise or graceful every single time that it's applied. So this is the sort of text that we're gonna need strength, we're gonna need wisdom, we're gonna need some sort of prudence when we apply it, and we're gonna need the dedication to actually follow through. Like I said, 2 Thessalonians, we're gonna be in chapter three. I'm going to read verse 6, and then I'm going to skip down to 12 through 15. You read along with me. This is what the Bible says. Now, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the traditions received from us. Verse 12. Now, we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly, to provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. 
If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Very clearly, Paul is going to finish out the second letter to the Thessalonians with a command. In fact, two commands. It isn't a suggestion. It's not an encouragement. It is a command. It is instruction that we are expected to obey. The command that Paul wants us to follow through with is a disassociation, a distance between us and a group of other people, between Christians and a group of others. Disassociating or breaking off a relationship is hard though. It's the sort of thing that we do not like to do. In fact, many of us will go through the soul-crushing pain of continuing on a relationship rather than to experience the heartbreak that is required in distancing from a certain relationship, a friendship or a peer relationship. And yet that is exactly what Paul is telling us to do, is to disassociate, to cause some distance in between us. And that sounds harsh. It's not the sort of thing that we expect Paul to say. It's certainly not the way that you would sign off on a letter. Don't forget to disassociate, to cause some division between you and a friend. And so it makes us ask, what kind of people is he speaking of? Who are the people that Paul says it is best that we put some distance between us? Is it murderers, political enemy, Texas A&M Aggies? No, none of those, although all of those would be maybe um, good choices. Instead, he is speaking of what he calls the idol. It's a word that we would use as lazy, the idol or the disobedient. You can see it there in verses 6 and 14. He says, now we command you, this is the instruction that you are to follow, to keep away from and to not associate with these people. In fact, he gives us a couple of steps, a couple of um, ways that we are supposed to um, follow through with this. This is the one where he calls them idle and that they don't obey instructions. He says that these people, and I'm going to explain in just a little bit, unpack what it means to be um, idle. But one thing that we need to know or one thing that we need to pay attention to is that these are brothers and sisters. These are other Christians. So that's that's. That's difficult in and of itself. We can understand or we can assume that there would be times in which we need to put some distance between us and people who reject God. Those who live their lives contrary to the commands of God. We can understand that, but other Christians, other people who uh, claim the name of Jesus, are we supposed to disassociate from them? Are we supposed to stand back and away from them? Yes, he says, there are times where discernment is needed and where you are supposed to uh, no longer be friends with other Christians. But how and why and in what ways? The first thing that he says is that we are to warn them or the first step, he doesn't say it first, he in fact says the last, but the first step is we don't consider them as enemies, but warn him as a brother, warn him, give him a warning. But my question is, what are we warning the idol or the lazy person of? What would you be warning them about? So if there's a tornado warning, you're being warned of the, you know, the potential threat of a tornado. If there's any other sort of warning, you know, somebody runs through and says something like, like, uh, like the British are coming or something like that, then you are, you're being warned of a threat. So 
what then is this warning about? If you were to sit somebody down and warn them as a brother, what would you be warning them about? This text, all of it, is not hard to understand. When you read it, everyone here, whether you have a Bible degree or not, can understand Paul's saying, if they're idle and disobedient, then warn them and disassociate with them. But for the purpose of explaining it, all I can really tell you is what I've experienced as a pastor. And I am telling you this, that eventually those who are not all in eventually won't be in at all. That people are going to pull themselves. There are groups of people, there are individuals that will either be discouraged or distracted and begin to fade away from the meeting of the church, from their small group, from participation in the church. And eventually you can mark it down that they won't be in the church at all. And that's a tragedy. It's a sad reality. Why? Because when a person isolates themselves, they are exposing themselves to all sorts of danger. It's like a, you know, like a pack animal, like zebras, you know, they are, their defense is being together in the group, is to stay in the group. And yet Christians sometimes, because of their distractions or their discouragements, will isolate themselves off. And so then they go through the natural hardships of life. They are attacked by the current uh, culture or the current sin nature and they are picked off by Satan because they are out by themselves. We are not created to be alone. And furthermore, our Christianity depends on us staying together and encouraging and strengthening one another. That's why, and I'm just now thinking about that, but that's why those of you who are watching online, that's good, it's a source. And on a weekend like this, when people are traveling, this is a great resource, but you can't stay just watching online. You have to meet with people. You have to come together. Christianity Church, that's why we don't call our online gathering or our online service like an online church. It's not a church. That's not church. Church is people together. It's not a campus, it's a resource. So when you have to miss, but ultimately you need to get together. In fact, so much so that when people are pulled away, the scriptures teach us, or when they begin to fade away, when they begin to stumble out, the scriptures teach us that one to another, we need to say, hey, that's not good for you. This is a warning. A couple nights ago, I was awoken. Awaken? I woke up and... uh, because I heard a noise. And what we've noticed, and Jackie messes with me about this, is anytime there's a noise, we'll sit up and I always immediately say, what was that? Like she knows, you know? Like, 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 I mean, like she has some sort of insight on something. I don't even really mean it. I just say it out loud. We heard four consecutive beeps. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. Like that. And it was right outside of my bedroom door. So that's a little, I mean, immediately, obviously, it's a murderer with their, their phone going off or something like that. I mean, that's obviously what it is, right? And so I sit up, I go, what was that? Was that a bird? <laughs> I look at her and she says, no, it wasn't a bird, you know? And it uh, turns out it was our smoke detector. It wasn't the battery. I had to Google it that night because who keeps the, you know, the user manual around? I, I had to Google it that night and one beep, beep. That's the batteries out. Four consecutive beeps means it is, um, I forget the word they used, it's, it's bad. Um, the thing went bad, you need a new one. So I silenced it. And that was three or four days ago. I replaced it. I went out this morning. This morning I went out to get into my truck and from our trash can, beep, 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 beep. 
I forgot to take the battery out of that thing, right? And so it's been notifying my neighborhood for three or four days that the smoke detector is bad. But I didn't know that. We found it yesterday, but we, I didn't know that it was doing that until after there's all this garbage on it. And so there it shall stay, notifying everybody until the trash man comes, right? Because I'm not digging in there um, for this deal. It is notifying no one of nothing. Listen, it is warning of nothing. I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor. I stand up here and I explain what the Bible says, but I can't warn the people that aren't here. I can't tell them. That's why it is vitally important that you do. The people that you once knew that were in your small group, that you still have dinner with, that you still work with, that you're still hanging out with, the people that you knew that were a part of our church, but they got involved in some sort of sorority or fraternity or some, some club or some other thing. They just got distracted by life or sports schedules or interests or hobbies and, and they are drifting away and you know it. You have to warn them. They are isolating themselves. They are becoming um, a target. So you have to warn them. Secondly, he says, not only do we need to warn them, but also there comes a time at which point after warning that we have to keep away from them or we cannot associate with them. This is like the mucurichrome. This is where it hurts. This is where it feels bad, where it stings. What does it even look like to disassociate from other people? We live in a world where we are constantly 100% always connected, right? You never have any distance from anybody. You have friends online and stuff like this. And so you are always connected. So in this world, what does it look like to disassociate? It's hard to quantify. I wish that Paul would have given us like a line in the sand. And he says, at this point, when they do this, then you are to not return their calls. And when they do this, then you should unfriend them on social media. And at this point, you should run from them when you see them in public. You know, these sort of steps would have been really helpful, but he, he doesn't give them to us. So instead, we're going to have to use wisdom and grace and pray. And it is a spectrum. It is a scale. You shouldn't go from like BFFs forever to, uh, to uh, um, I hate you, I hope you die. It shouldn't be like all the way distant like that. There are these distances where we have to put between us and other people. And hear me on this, you can't just ghost them. I feel like most Christians fall on one side or the other. It's either we don't care or we don't pay enough attention in whom we associate with. And so we just associate with anybody or we just completely cut people off and we don't talk to them anymore. Remember, this comes with a warning that you should lovingly and graciously sit somebody down and say, because I love you, you have to start getting back into um, your faith. You have to grow in your faith. You have to walk and chase after Jesus. Without that, you become a target. And I cannot, I cannot become a target with you. I am committed to the church, to our beliefs, to Jesus and to chasing after him. And I, here I will stand. If you go off without me, you will go off without me. You will go off in that direction. At some point, we have to lovingly and graciously let somebody else know. As I said earlier, it is on all of us to hold each other accountable. We have to be kind enough to reach out to other people and say, you don't, 
That's not how this works. You can't just say that you are a follower of Jesus and yet hate his church. Jesus started the church, right? This is the commitments to the church. You can't say that you believe Jesus, but don't do what he says. Man, we all know people that claim Christianity. At one point, they were really into church or at one point, they even served in churches and this sort of stuff. And then they go out and live whatever kind of lifestyle they want to live, still trying to hold on to Jesus like it's some t-shirt that they're wearing. We need to graciously tell somebody that you can wear the shirt all you want to, but that's not Christianity. That's some sort of perversion of it. That's some sort of Southern um, uh, politically correct way to say Jesus take the will and then cuss like a sailor. That's not Christianity. That's not what we believe. And so at some point we have to disassociate with them. And, and I don't like preaching this. Like, I really wish that there was just some other way, but you wear certain clothes, right? Because somebody you love told you that that looked good or that these were cool clothes. You, you buy certain vehicles because it was like the vehicle kind of that all the, all the people in your, in your social um, circles buy, right? I mean, like we buy clothes and eat food and, and drive certain vehicles because we were friended into that. I am telling you, I've seen this. Uh, dozens of times you can friend someone out of church people leave because like I said they're distracted or they're disengaged or they're disappointed and it's like pulling a string on a sweater they're just pulling more and more people out at some point for the sake of Christ and for your own soul you have to cut that string and say here I stand and I love you and I want you back over this way, but I can't go off the direction that you're going. This means like I literally believe what it is that I say that I believe. And so it matters. We're supposed to do all of that, of course, with grace and with wisdom and on some sort of sliding scale. It's just that we have to be very careful who we associate with because you are either the influencer or you are being influenced. There's no middle ground in that conversation. He doesn't just speak of how they need to be careful with these people that are idle, but he at some point actually turns his attention directly toward the people who are being idle. He does this in verse 12. He says, now we command and exhort such people, them, talking to them, by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for yourselves. That's what Paul says. So I said I would unpack what he means by this. What exactly is he talking about with idleness or laziness. The church at that time, uh, there's two kind of factors at play. One of them was that there was a misunderstanding and misinformation about the return of Jesus. They were thinking if Jesus is gonna come back literally at any moment, then why do I need to care about uh, my relationships? Why do I need to care about uh, my body? Why do I need to care about my job? So they just quit their jobs thinking any moment now, Jesus is coming to get me, you know, and so I don't have to do all of this stuff. Well, it turns out he didn't immediately come back. And so people got hungry. People got lazy. They got tired. And so what they did was they turned and became um, consumers. They were taking advantage of the other people in the church. So that's one factor that was happening. And the other one is something that we're just not familiar with. The way that they took care of needs was literally take care of the literal need. 
all right? We have systems and programs and, and, and um, ministries and that sort of stuff to care for people. But the way that they did was they just showed up to church with like a loaf of bread, right? And they said, who needs bread? All right, oh, you need some, here's, here's some bread for you and you need some bread, here's some bread for you. Does anybody have some ham? I need some ham, you know? And they just literally helped one another. So you can imagine if there were people who were able-bodied, able to provide for themselves, able to work, and yet were not, they were showing up to the church consuming what they did not need and taking away from those who actually needed. This is despicable. This is gross. And to this, Paul says, those people are taking and are not giving. It has the same word as like a soldier that is not ready for battle. It is a freeloader and it weakens the cause and the mission. And Paul is not being hypocritical here. In verse seven and eight, he reminds them and they could have very easily said, that's not true, but they don't. He reminds them in seven and eight that even when he was with them, he didn't take anything from them. He didn't even go to dinner without providing something for the dinner. Paul never showed up to dinner without a dessert or a drink or something like that, you know? He always contributed to the table because that is what we are supposed to do. And so this lands, that's what's going on in that text. But how does that land in our text? Did anybody show up today with some fresh made bread? If you did, you need to share, right? You know, everybody needs to share. But you didn't do that. That's not the way that we do it. But we do, for lack of a better word, provide services one to another, okay? We provide some services, right? And they are spiritual in their nature. One of them, and you've heard me, if you've been around this church for any amount of time, you know the next three things I'm about to say, but I'm gonna say them now, and I'm gonna keep saying them. The first one is small groups. You need to be in a small group. In small groups is where you are not shocked to hear about what's happening with another person because you have walked with that person through whatever it is that they are going through. It is one-on-one -on -one informed impact. You know what they're dealing with. You know where they live. You know their children. You know their spouses. You know their jobs. You are walking in life with them. You're walking through these circumstances together. That's small groups. That's how we help one another. One-on-one -on -one informed impact. And the second thing is service or volunteering. That is when you greet people. Whether you're on the First Impressions team or not, that's when you have, um, you're serving coffee. That's when you are, um, right now we have a volunteer and we could use more volunteers who um, on Sundays at 9.30 through a rotation, they are um, uh, hosting the online gatherings right now. They are, you know, like saying hi to people and, and making the comments and all that sort of stuff. And so you can serve in all of these ways and that is uninformed impact. It's on a greater scale. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a card or a call or somebody has come and told me about um, how they walked into our church gathering hurt, in pain, carrying a burden that nobody else knew about. And somebody, a stranger told them, and it seemed like they meant it. I'm glad you're here. Will you sit by me? We can go to lunch after this. I'm, hey, do you need anything? This is where the restrooms are. My small group's about to meet. Do you want to come with me? It means a lot to you. Think about how many people live their entire weeks without ever hearing somebody else say, I love you. I am honest to goodness glad that you are near me right now. Without hugging them or shaking their hand, without telling them, you mean something to me. And so every week we come together and there's a bunch of strangers and friends, people that we see every week and they look at one another and they say, I love you. 
and I'm glad you're here. That's huge. So we have the one-on-one informed impact. We have the uninformed, broader impact. And then there's giving, financially sacrificing your money for the good of others and the glory of God to where the impact is extended far beyond any place or people that you've ever met all around the world. This week I shared a picture and I've seen other videos and other pictures. Not only did it happen in Uvalde, not only did it happen in Buffalo, but it happens all week long, every single day that hours, hours after the shooting in Texas, Southern Baptist volunteers trained volunteers were headed there, were there, were serving and, and, and helping people, helping them grieve, helping them eat, giving them both their physical needs and spiritual needs. They do that. They're able to do that. We have people in our church that are part of what's called the disaster relief teams. We have people in our church that are able to go do that because you give sacrificially. So there's this one-on-one impact, there's this broad impact, and then there's this extended impact. These are the things that we provide and yet there are people that come in and they just take and don't give and that hurts the mission. That's why we want to encourage each other and want to warn one another. If you walked in and you got a little bulletin, right? You got that little folded piece of paper. On the front was a QR code, same QR code that's right up here. You can point your camera at that. You can point your camera at that piece of paper. That'll take you to an online forms in which you can fill it out and say, you know what? I want to serve somewhere. One hour a month, I'm willing to serve. I want to set up recurring giving. I want to find a small group. All of these different ways that you can be all in Not fade away, but lean back in. Paul doesn't assume, though, that everyone is lazy, nor do I assume that everyone in our church is idle. In fact, I believe the vast majority of our church is not idle, is working. And so to that, Paul gives another word. He says, but as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. He doesn't say don't get tired, right? Because this is exhausting work. This is exhausting. Here's something that we just need to grasp and understand. If 100% of 100% of churches, if everyone contributed and everyone served and everyone gave, we would still be exhausted. There is no end, it seems, to sin. There's no bottom to the darkness that is facing our world. We saw that online. We saw that on TV, that there is just so much darkness and yet there is so much that we can do. And so Paul says, don't, don't give up. This is good work. You are helping people. And as you read the rest of Paul's letters, he says, one day it will all end. Work toward that day, knowing that there will come a day when, there will come a day when there are no more mass shootings. None. There will come a day when there is no more racism. It is done. Work toward that day. Work like it is that day. Care for people and love people. Don't grow weary. Don't give in. Don't give up. Keep pushing because that is a life worth living. 
And I should remind you and I should tell you about this regularly. These are some of the things that we shared at the church conference and I realized some of you couldn't be there so I wanted to share some of these with you today. These are reasons not to give up. In the last few months, our small group attendance has increased by 26%. That's a quarter of people, that's just adults, getting together in their small groups. Our choir has steadily grown back. I love seeing what they did in the Easter service. Our kids ministry did a little thing where they prayed for 100 straight minutes. Our children prayed for 100 straight minutes and raised $100 for the Arkansas Children's Home. Seven students in our youth group have given their lives to Jesus Christ. The women's ministry hosted a gender and sexuality forum that helped people all across our community. Our senior adults are meeting back together at 5 p.m. and in their lunches for fellowship and mutual accountability. There have been 44 families join our church since January. Our goal is 100 and we're well on our way towards that goal. Our college ministry, which is such an important ministry to our church, 13 college students made a commitment to join our church. Six students surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And right now, in this moment, 16 college students from Second Baptist are serving uh, the Lord across the globe or across our nation in different cities. Seven of our small groups served hot meals during the warming station in February. And currently we are $96,000 ahead of where we were this time last year financially. And 76 people have given to Second Baptist for the first time since January. These are good things. These are great things. Don't grow weary. Don't be tired. Don't give up. Good stuff is happening. And all of that is glory to God and to your credit because you are doing good things. This is a lot of good things to do and so we ought to continue to push. We ought to continue to invest. We ought to be all in, all in. Warn those who are not, disassociate from those who will not listen or heed the warning. Why? Because the mission matters and people matter. And so my My uh, encouragement for you this morning is to be all in, to invest all the way in, to lean toward the mission and to do what God has called us to do. No matter where I kayak, no matter what river or creek that I am on, it seems that every single one of them has a rope swing. The Cadron has one right at the end of, uh, of where we float. And uh, it's, it, it's really long. And at the end of it is a bicycle uh, handle. Uh, somebody took the bar, the front piece of that um, bicycle handle and tied it to it. And, you know, and you've seen these. We've all seen them. And maybe you've even played on one of these before. Somebody shimmied up a tree limb, tied off a rope, or they threw it over and tied it off. And then they attached something like a stick or a bicycle uh, handlebar. Uh, to the end of it and then you you take that and you go up the edge of the ridge or up the hill and you hold on to it and you swing out over the river and you fall in that's the idea and we all understand that and it looks fun and it is uh it seems fun but it is something i am never ever ever going to do ever <laughs> for a number of reasons and these are my reasons the first one is this i don't trust that limb all right I don't know how long that tree's been there. It looks like it's been there for a while. It looks like it could give out at any moment, right? And I just spent five hours on a river where there are limbs everywhere, all right? This could be the next one, right? So I don't trust that. Secondly, I don't know who tied that rope, right? 
could have been a Boy Scout or somebody in the Navy, and so that's a pretty good knot, or it could have been you, and I'm not hanging on that rope. But third, and probably most important, the reason that I am never, ever swinging on one of those, I will cheer you on, but I'm not doing it personally, is because I watch America's Funniest Home Videos. (laughs) And I watch it faithfully. And these things just don't seem to work out. There's just so much video evidence that rope swings are a bad idea. And I don't want to stereotype people here, but I have noticed things. I've noticed a difference in the genders. Men, uh, the rope swing experience for men doesn't seem to work out because they just go crazy. They'll come running out of nowhere. They'll try to jump off of a higher cliff and grab the rope and then swing out there. You know, they try to attach fireworks to themselves as they are swinging out over the rope swing or something like that. And so it doesn't go well. Conversely, women, theirs doesn't go well because they don't seem to really commit to the idea. They either don't hold on well with both hands. They don't really run. They swing out there and won't let go. And that was the whole point is to get out there and let go. And so they come slamming back into the side of that ridge or to the dirt hill or something like that. The funniest ones are, right? When they grab hold of that and they jump up and then they smack their bottoms and they skid all the way down and then just fall off of the edge. You gotta really commit to this thing, all right? If you're going to do it. Something similar is happening in this text. You gotta go all in or you're gonna get hurt. You put yourself at risk. You gotta let go and jump in. It's how this thing is set up. It's, it's how it works. And I feel like today there are some of you standing on the edge thinking about going. And what I am telling you is this, in love and in grace, I am saying this. If you're gonna go, you gotta go all the way. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.